said, what we are talking about this morning is um, relationships, and I know I just lost every man in the room when I said that. Uh, so to get a little bit better perspective on that this morning, we're going to watch this quick video, and then we're going to tie this all in together. So let's check this out. glad kids don't prioritize the way we do? Relationships seem so much easier then. They came naturally. And somewhere along the way, we added pressure, pretense, and conflict to the mix. But every single one of us is still wired by God to be in relationships with others, whether through marriage or friendships. During this challenge, you'll discover how God wants us to connect and how we can help each other become all He wants us to be. appreciate the highness of that kid's hair that was um, getting the note passed to him. I was like, oh yeah, I think I've, when I used to have more hair, it used to be that tall. So um, it, that, that video, it said during this challenge, what that is really is a commercial, if you will, for our next challenge for our men's ministry. This is uh, Advanced Sunday at Faith. Once a month, we uh, try to focus a little more strategically on our guys here at Faith, um, not to the exclusion of our ladies, but uh, a little bit more concentrated way towards our men. And so what we thought we would do this month, instead of doing the typical breaking up at the end of the service, we'd keep everybody in the room because of the subject matter is going to um, be more applicable, I think, to everybody together. So we won't do our typical breakout at the end of this, um, which allows me to go about 10 minutes later than uh, I should. So... Good luck with that. Um, we are going to be talking, uh, prayerfully considering at this point, uh, trying to be prepared for our typical January, February launch time of our new challenge. What we do with our men here at Faith is we go through a series of challenges that um, last for uh, the better part of a year. And so we start with the, uh, the theme and the launch to that, typically in a conference form we've done the last couple of years. Around January, we launched the new challenge, and then we established some follow-up groups where men get together once a week and uh, go through some uh, material that we've uh, provided and encouraged so that everyone's kind of on the same page, literally, and they move through that um, process together as brothers in Christ. And uh, if those groups decide to stay connected after the challenge is done, then we help them figure that out, too. Uh, so what we're doing this morning is we're giving you guys just a bit of a heads up on what the next challenge is going to be about, and we're really praying about how do we do this that's broader than just our outreach to men at faith, because the subject matter is relationships. The first 
challenge that we had was a, what, what the biblical definition of manhood is rather than buying into the worldly stereotypes and the confusion that's existed for the last couple of decades, especially as to how a man is supposed to be godly in this world. And then the second aspect of that was how do we understand the gospel so that we're, we're understanding who we are as, as men, as the Bible describes, but then how do we relate to the gospel? How do we allow the gospel to shape our lives? And then quite appropriately, the next step to that is now, how does the gospel, after it's done impacting me, or I shouldn't say done impacting me, after it started impacting me, how does it then impact everybody that I come in contact with? And so I think it's very um, important that the, that the steps are laid out the way they are, because what we're going to be talking about this morning is really the the, the crux of all relationships is how powerfully you allow the gospel to penetrate your heart. Without the gospel, our relationships are going to be a mess, no matter how much we try, no matter how good they look on the outside. And so we'll be getting into that a little bit. Now, guys, before you check out on me and say, well, relationships, this is a girl talk, because that's what women do better. They do relationships. We do tasks. I, I get all that. I know we're wired differently. I think someone wrote a book somewhere about the difference between men and women somewhere along the way. Only about 4,000 copies of, you know, or different titles since the 70s probably on the differences are from men and women. That is, is made clear to us. We know that there are differences. And then the longer that our, our time goes out so, uh, in society, it's good to be reminded of those differences because it's, it seems as though outside of the, the walls of this church, there's a world trying to blur all those lines and they're, they're being very creative with it. So the differences between men and women are extremely important and they're very strategic as we talk about relationships. But, but relationships are not primarily a female gift or a female interest. And, and the reason why we might be te- tempted to think that way is because we've allowed um, uh, relationships to be defined by emotion, which uh, I think, uh, I don't know how many you know, scores of women have admitted, oh yeah, I'm the more emotional in the relationship, and he's kind of you know, just straight and even keeled and everything. And that's that's majority of how that happens in a marriage relationship, in fact. But we're not talking about just the emotional aspect of relationships. Emotions are a part of most relationships at some point or the other. Um, but that is not the summation of what relationships are, because there's probably a lot of guys in this room going, okay, I, I think I know where he's going with this. There's going to be a lot more chick flicks and roses and chocolates in my future, aren't there? Because you're going to guilt me into thinking I need to be more emotionally sensitive to my wife and everything. For one, we're not just talking about the marriage relationship today. And two, we're not going to focus much on emotion at all. A lot of what happens is a lot. some of the principles that we're going to be talking about this morning are coming right out of uh, the material that we think we're going to be launching for January. Our, the men's leadership team has begun meeting and praying about this and evaluating things and stuff. And so um, it's material I was, I was pretty familiar with. I, I pulled rank and suggested we go this direction. Um, so a lot of the um, points that I'm going to be making in our brief time together are going to be the um, the skeleton of where this study is going for our guys uh, in early next year. So with that being said, I just want you to look at this simple little continuum line up here and, and see that most of us have some balance or some some pull one side or the other when it comes to relationships. Either we tend towards, uh, let me see of which, which angle I'm going here because I could say isolation and point that way and you guys will get mad at me. So um, isolation 
is one aspect in which we approach our relationships where somebody says, uh, you know, it's a lot of work. They let me down. I'm not interested anymore. And yeah, if we're, if we're, being, uh, if we're being sensitive, I guess, to the typical breakdown of man versus woman, men have a tendency to be a little bit more on the isolation side. I was just watching a sitcom episode the other day where the guy was just, you know, fantasizing about having his own shed out there in his backyard so he could be left alone all the time. And of course, that went down really well with his wife, right? Uh, so men do have a tendency for that, but but really, that is not just a, a male thing. That could be anybody who's gone through a bad experience, was never trained properly in how to relate to one another or anything, and it's just a lot of work. It's extremely uncomfortable. It's like putting on a, a jacket made of thorns for most people, and they just run to that end. On the other extreme of all of this uh, is, is the um, immersion side of things where somebody says, basically, it kind of drips off them that I need you in my life in order to breathe. If you let me down or if you walk out on me or if you whatever, I, I will crumble because of my dependence on, on just your presence in my life. Now, I would contend from what I've seen in the scriptures that both of these extremes on this continuum, continuum are sinful overreactions to this thing that we call relationship. Because we're tainted with sin, because we have our past, because we have the things that we've gone through, because maybe we lack certain mechanics of making some of these things work, we have a tendency to move towards one side or the other. I'm not saying everybody in this room is the, 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 the end of that line on steroids, but you could probably look at that line and say, I think I'm a little bit more this, and she or he or somebody else in my life's a little bit more that. We might be able to recognize where our extremes are, what our tendencies are towards, towards moving towards. So the Bible does command different approaches for our relationships based on how we're made up. Guys are going to approach the matter of relationships differently than women. We've already established that, and we've said about 4 million uh, titles of books in the last three decades have, have covered that. But the Bible started all that. The Bible started even in the command in marriage, in that specific relationship where God is talking to a husband. He commands him to be what towards his wife? Class? A husband is to show love. So now I know I just spent some time saying that relationships aren't emotional and all this kind of stuff, but when the Bible talks to husbands to be sacrificially loving as Christ was to the church, which we know the extreme that he carried that out to, if God is putting that command on men, it's because he knows that that's probably not going to be their first and foremost action. Not because they don't quietly love or provide for their family or something, but in a way that God knows that he's wired a woman to receive. And so he puts that as a command over a man because if he's being specific to the gender, he knows this isn't just the way this guy's wired. So he needs that as a goal. He needs that as a command. He needs to know that if he violates that, everything's going to start breaking down. So to a woman, he says to the wife, he says, make sure you show your husband respect. I'm just going to let you fill in the blanks there. No, just kidding. So, because he knows the challenge to women, especially, I mean, we see it all through our culture. We see it through all our sitcoms and everything. It is very out of fashion for a wife to show her husband respect. And then wives sit in there, it make, start making that, that mental excuse in their mind, but he hasn't done anything to earn it. And so if God is making commands over these things, he must be saying that we can press forward and do these things, whether we feel like it or not, whether the recipient has even earned it. So God knows that in order for us to approach relationships, 
that it's going to be a little bit different for men and women. So the things that we're about to say are not letting one side off the hook versus the other. And again, we're not talking strictly marriage relationships. That was just our example to get started. In fact, it is how we are designed. And the more that we fight this design, the more we we push against God and find that friction in our life. In Genesis 2, uh, verse 18, God had just got done saying that everything he created was good. Every stage, every step of the way, he puts a stamp of, of approval on. You feel it almost like a, like a rhythm, and, and God said it was good, and he created this, and God said it was good, and it just keeps on going. The first time God pronounces some aspect of his creation as not being good wasn't because he made a mistake, but because when he made Adam, and Adam, in, in our view, turned up alone after he saw all the animals had companions and everything, God said it is not good. He broke his rhythm broke his pattern to say, I wanted you to see how complete everything else was until you came to Adam's aloneness. So when God sees that Adam is alone, he says, that is not good. Instead, I'm going to make him a helper that is suitable for him. And that word helper sometimes confuses us a little bit. It sends us down the wrong path. You know, it's, it's like, well, I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. And I married a wife so that she could help me get that done. Now, there's an aspect, of course, to where the marriage relationship is teamwork, of course. Um, there's a, a huge aspect to where it lightens the burden and all those kinds of things. But the problem with the word helper, if we just interpret that as being she comes alongside to make the workload easier, almost in a subservient kind of way, is that David used that same word for God when he called out for help in Psalm 27. He said that the Lord would be my strength and my shield. He'd be my protector. He'd be my helper. And I don't think David would ever dare say, so why don't you come and serve me with all the things I need to get done and you just carry the workload along with me. So God must have been coming at it from a different angle from what we would think of in our English term of helper. Instead, he's, he's emphasizing more the companionship, that two would walk together, that two would become one flesh, that they would become united to keep each other company. The work gets done. Sometimes the job is easier. Sometimes because it's a relationship, it's more difficult. But God intended that he would create someone for Adam so that he would have someone to hang out with. Someone to, to use the fancier word, to commune with. Somebody to express that relationship and all the things that God has, has uh, built into a human being with somebody else. So this is where God was going when he created mankind, is that he hardwired in Adam. He wasn't over just sulking, going, I'm so lonely. And it wasn't because he was sinful. Adam hadn't even sinned yet. The reason why Adam was incomplete, and the, way, the reason why his heart was heavy and everything is because that's how God made him. He made him to express that to somebody just like him. Somebody that could relate to the fact that they've been built up from the ground up. Somebody that could relate to the fact that, that he needs to see somebody you know, similar to his size and, and similar to his experiences and gets hungry when he gets hungry and all those kinds of things. So God did that on purpose so that Adam would feel that void. And God said, I'm going to give you someone to be a companion with you. Adam wasn't just being needy when he felt loneliness. He was just being human. And he wasn't even being a sinful human at that. The, the fact that some of us are having our difficulties in our relationships, and if we're being honest, there's some relationship in our life that's, that's giving us trouble right now. 
Um, it, it doesn't mean that you have a terrible marriage or it doesn't mean that you're fighting with your boss or it doesn't mean that your kids are outwardly rebellious all the time. But there's so many aspects of the people that we come in contact with and the people that we have to relate to because of sometimes proximity or the commitments we've made that those relationships inevitably cause friction. And fighting against our design and how we were wired and pretending that we can move either way towards isolation or way towards super neediness ends up causing us that frustration. So just like that warning light on our dashboard, if right now some of those relationships are causing you frustration, start with, God, am I fighting against the way that you built me? Am I trying to do things my way rather than surrendering to the design? God, when he started uh, these human relationships in Genesis chapter 2, started them in a perfect environment and uh, created them to be in a very stress-free, you couldn't pick a, a more beautiful place, couldn't pick a more providing uh, um, atmosphere or anything like that. They had everything they needed. They had each other. Everything uh, was perfect. Now, in, in my years of studying the Bible, what I've come to realize is that when you have a chapter like Genesis chapter 2, there, the next one that follows is a bigger number, Genesis chapter 3. It's brilliant, isn't it? Um, Pastor Bill said that last week he tried throwing out some soft, softball pitches to you guys for humor, and, and some of it came back, you know, swing and a miss. So I figured I'd make him feel better and try some of my own. But see, God knew chapter 3 was coming. I, this is your no-duh moment of the sermon. I have plenty of them. But, but Genesis chapter 2 is always followed by Genesis chapter 3. Humanity has never had really a good run when it comes to relationships. The very first family created messed this whole thing up. It didn't take generations. It didn't take centuries. It didn't take any of that stuff. It came one chapter later where Adam and Eve have the perfect family environment, and then all of a sudden they're drawing each other into sin and into weakness. Their kids are fighting with each other so badly that one kills the other one and stuff. It gets messy right from the get-go. Genesis 3 always follows Genesis 2. So the point here for us is that that when we start to fantasize about, well, they have a great relationship because they married the right person. Or if I had employees like that, man, I'd be boss of the year. Or we say, man, well, if my kids had their temperament, I'd be a great parent too. Instead, I got these knuckleheads. <laughs> this is what we do. We fantasize the grass is greener in the other garden, right? And then what ends up happening is that people become people. The shine wears off. And the reason why that shine always wears off, I don't care how beautiful the next woman is. I don't care how obedient the next child is. I don't care how, how um, uh, hardworking the next employee is. The shine always wears off because you and I all share the same ingredient. You and I are all tainted by the thing that Grandpa Adam passed down to us. In Romans 5.12, the Bible says, Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. You and I go into our relationships with blinders on, thinking, I found the right one. I did the 36 steps of compatibility that eHarmony laid out for me. Um, I've got this one dialed in and locked in. I know for sure this is it. Or the last job didn't work out because all the people were wrong. I got to the new place, man, and these people are just treating me great. We all buy into the honeymoon trap, and we let our guard down. We forget that eventually people become people. Why? Because all have sinned. 
and fall short of the glory of God. The shine wears off and that sin puts us all on the same playing field. It isn't to say that we've all messed up as badly as the next person. We know there are headlines out there of people that have done some pretty horrific things. So it isn't to say that we've all done those things. But what the scripture teaches us in this doctrine of sin is that, you know what, if it wasn't for the grace of God, you and I'd all be pretty capable of that too. That we're not excluded just because we've gone down a different path or just because God's grace for the plans he has for us is a little bit more prominent on us or something like that. But because of that sin, before a holy God, we're all on the same playing field. We're all standing on the same level grass, tainted and broken and marred by sin. And the reason why that impacts our relationships kind of goes back to a little um, ditty I remember back in Sunday school uh, where the, it, was, it was probably the only scripture I was able to remember because the tune was so awesome. But it was from Ephesians 4.32. It says, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath Forgiven you, Ephesians 4 and 32. Good luck getting that out of your head today. This is the secret. This is the application to all of this. If Is it just a negative thought to think, well, everyone's a sinner. They're all going to let me down and people in all relationships stink. No one's ever going to be good like I expected them to be or like I think I needed them to be. It's not a negative view. It means that in order for us to make our relationships better, we start from a standpoint of grace. And Ephesians 4.32 is saying the grace that you have received, if you were to really see how tainted and ugly would sin your heart is before a holy God, then the next person that acts like a human, you're going to say, well, that's what humans do. I expect that from them because I are one too. And so we start to understand and we start to relate in the standpoint that we're all prone to mess this thing up badly. Another principle to keep in mind when it comes to this idea of relationships is that each of us is tempted to make relationships the end rather than the means. It's, it's our human, um, in our state of sin, it's our human starting point to want to elevate the role of creation over the creator in everything. God makes beautiful, majestic landscapes with still waters and giant mountain peaks and rustling uh, 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 leaves in the trees and all this, and you're kind of out there in the middle of a, on a canoe out there in the middle of the lake, and it's all calm and still. And then what do we do? Rather than thinking, wow, isn't God so good? I can't wait to go share this with somebody else. We say, I don't need anything else other than this. This is my church. I meet God right here and I don't need, I don't need people. I don't need the messiness of that. Churches let you down. I don't, we instantly run to the creation, the thing that he made, and, be, and, we're, and we're completely full up on that for the time being. We love it for the moment and we settle for it. God tells us that the human body requires food to survive and in his goodness he makes it tasty to us. He makes it incredible to us. He makes it the kind of thing we don't feel like we can do just a few hours without. And he makes it so good and everything instead of us going, wow, isn't God so good that he, that he provided us in such a kind way instead of just a, 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 a matter-of-fact business-like way. He makes it something we can enjoy. 
And what do we do? We overindulge and we feel guilty about it afterwards and stuff. We just dive into the creation and we say, okay, thanks, God. If we even say thank you at all. God makes the human body attractive to other people. And he says, well, you need to have this aspect of your relationship in order to continue the human race. But by the way, I'm going to make it fun too. Make it something you can enjoy. Make it something you can relate to each other through. Make it something that's special in the bond for husband and wife. And we completely pervert it. And we say, that's all I need. This aspect of what he's created, I I will chase it down to any degree. I'll let it ruin my status. I'll let it ruin my life. I'll let it ruin my relationships. Why? Because the thing that he created became the most important thing to me. This is what we do. I think it was Jonathan Edwards that said our hearts are little idle factories. It's like a conveyor belt where we're just like, oh, I like that. I can make that an idol. Oh, I like that. I could worship that. I don't know if you know any great artists. Um, I have known several. Um, I'm related to one that I consider to be a great artist. My uncle is an extremely uh, uh, great watercolor painter. Uh, Those of you that know Frank Morton here in our church is unparalleled. It's amazing the stuff that he can produce. And, um, you know, when you see a great work of art, and at the same time you happen to know who created it, you know where I'm going with this, you look at this and you kind of instantly swell up with this a little bit of like, if there's such a good thing as good pride, it probably isn't. So let this be the eat the meat, spit out the bones part. But there's this thing that you swell up and you go, I know that person. I know who made that. Or if you think you do and you just instantly start looking for the signature. I remember walking into a, a, a gallery in Camden one time and I was just looking and it's just really neat to see. I walk in and I was like, hey, that's my uncle. And what did I do? I instantly started telling the person who runs the gallery I'm related to him. And they're like, oh, we love Dennis LeBlanc's painting, all this kind of stuff, and going on and on. And I'm just like, yeah, I know. What do you paint? I really like my uncle's paintings. I can tell you that much. But there's this pride that comes with that. I instantly, I look for it. It looks like one of his. is his name on it. And then when I see it, I get excited. Is it possible that that's what God gave us all of these great things to enjoy so that we would scan it frantically saying, where's the author's signature? Who created this? So that we can say, I know him. I know how he created what he created. I know why he created it. I want you to meet him too. I want you to come and see this. So any of you that want to come see my uncle's paintings, just let me know. I'll brag about him. I'll show him off. But that's the point. When we are in touch with the creator, when we know him, when he's forgiven us of so much, when we get into his handiwork, what ends up happening is we stop settling for just the creation that he made, and instead we pursue the signature on it. We pursue the deeper meaning behind it. It was C.S. Lewis, I think, that famously quoted that we have um, people through the generations being offered a banquet feast at the table with God, and instead they're happy making mud pies in the slums. And that's what, because, you know, the things that it's fun to do or it's, it's what we get caught up in, and the whole time God's saying, I gave you that so that you would look up. I gave you that so that you would see what I'm up to. God always intended the good things to point to the Creator. I want to just go back and make a a simple statement. I think they're going to put it up for me. God makes things good, and then we go and make the good things the only things. See, God makes them the way he does because that's who he is. He's not going to make them less than good just so we don't get hooked on them. He's good. 
He's going to give us what is a reflection of who he is. Our problem is we take that good thing and then we covet it, we latch onto it, and we don't let it go. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. We take what is clearly seen and we stop at that. It's all I needed. But our relationships are intended to point to him, and that's all they're intended for. Do we get to enjoy them along the way? Yes, because like beautiful creation, like food, like intimacy, all those things, we get to enjoy it along the way, but not for our own selfish pleasures, but to point us towards him. And that's exactly why our relationships are given to us. So this starts to really do battle with our, our, our earlier predispositions to either be a person of isolation or a person of immersion. Because then we start thinking both of those are selfish ends to the, uh, to the um, uh, issue of relationships. Either I avoid them because I don't want to be bothered or I can't live without them because I need that human contact so badly that I smother people. All of those things are selfish ends to the continuation. What if we've been granted a rewarding relationship in our life? Some of us have them. Some of us um, have great friendships with other people. Some of us have a pretty problem-free working relationship with our coworkers or get along great with our boss. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Um, you know, um, so, uh, you know, uh, some of us have some smooth relationships. Not that they all are, but some of us have tasted of good relationships. What if we've been given those relationships to be an outreach to others? What if we've been given that, that kind of friction-free environment so that other people could say, you mean so if I do things the right way, if I'm a loyal person, like the Proverbs would say, in order to, to be loved, you have to show yourself loving or to be, have friends, show yourself friendly or something. So you're saying if I carry out some of these biblical principles, it may come back to me in return. Some of us are able to put that on demonstration and say, absolutely. Maybe that relationship was given to us to be an example for other people, not in a braggadocious way or not in a, in a clingy, coveting way, but in a way that says, you know, I had a good run with that. I got to make sure I'm sharing some of that with other people. For those of us that tend towards um, immersion, that's a little bit harder to do. Because you think you have the best thing. You just found the best friend. You just found the person that understands everything you say. They, they, they treat you with respect or, or, or they're fun to be around or something like that. And the last thing sometimes you want to do is share that person. Because I finally found the friend I want. There's a way, we, we, those that are uh, given towards immersion are, are prone to jealousy, prone to clinginess, prone to overneediness. And then we start to take a track record and realize, okay, that best friend who I thought I had burnt out, that best friend I thought I had burnt out, that marriage I thought I, I was going so great burnt out. We go through that because we just suck all the life out of it because we need it so badly. Instead of thinking about why did God give me a good relationship, one that I can enjoy? Did he give it for me to make sure I'm letting it go back to him? What if we've been allowed to go through some of the difficult relationships in life because we were meant to be an outreach to others? See, understanding that God gave us relationships to point towards the creator 
means that we can't necessarily take control for how we're supposed to, uh, that, that we would own these relationships. Maybe this was simply something to go through so that other people would be able to be encouraged by that too. Is it fair to constantly pursue selfish rewards because we think we've earned it rather than showing a world that is bent towards immediate relief and not having any time to deal with any friction in their life? I'm not dealing with difficult people anymore. We have that mantra all over the place. So maybe we're meant to be a little bit the opposite and say, I can endure this a little bit more in in an appropriate way so that I can show the world around us that God loves his people enough to give them the strength because he's a strong God like we just sang about, the strength to endure these things. Now, I'm tempted to make all sorts of caveats about what's an appropriate relationship to stay in and all that kind of stuff. So, so let's just take that at surface value, what I'm saying, rather than going through a whole list of so that you might be tempted to say, well, what about this kind of relationship? Should I be in that? I'm dealing with the principle of our endurance at the moment. We've counseled uh, bunches of uh, women in most particular circumstances who were uh, being abused by their spouses and everything to get out. Uh, We don't go and apply a verse or something like that and say you just got to endure it and all this kind of stuff. We try to approach it with wisdom and everything. But the idea is that we as natural human beings tend to remove ourselves as quickly as possible from anything that hints of difficulty I only want stress-free friendships, no drama, no blah, blah, blah. What if God is calling us to endure some things so that he can be seen, so that his signature on the corner of the canvas is one that says, I uphold my people and I give them wisdom and I give them strength to endure. Messy relationships reveal our hearts. They reveal our gods. They reveal our weaknesses. And when we're in those situations, who is it supposed to point us towards? course it's supposed to point us towards the lord but we often try to figure it out ourselves or to come up with our own solutions or our own suggestions Uh, paul tripp the author of of one of the resources that we intend to use here just simply put it this way he says the most dangerous aspects of your relationships is not your weaknesses but your delusions of strength when you and i realize we can't do these things well that we're prone to run away from people and to live in isolation or we're prone to suck the life out of them till they're sick of us or something, once we realize that maybe we move in one of those directions, we start to rely more on him and say, God, you're the one that owns this relationship. You're the one that owns this next interaction. You're the one that needs to control my tongue so I don't chase these people away. Relationships are for everyone. It's what we've been built for. It's not just a female discussion because it involves emotion. All of us are built for relationships. God created us to want relationships in order to show the world who he is. And since that problem-free relationship doesn't exist, we need to stop expecting it. We need to stop clawing for it. We need to stop trying to recreate the honeymoon period over and over and over again. Instead, just realize perfect relationships don't exist. So God, where's my work in this? I'm not going to run from it anymore. And even though the problem-free relationship doesn't exist, doesn't mean we get away with settling for bad ones. It'd be easy for us to make the excuse, well, the the preacher just said that there's no perfect people, so stop asking me to be. We can't take that lazy aspect that that just because it's never going to be perfect doesn't mean we don't do it better. Here's what Jesus prayed as we wrap this up. In John 17, 
He says, I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all those who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they'll all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are in community. They are in relationship and they are without sin. So this isn't just a human, broken, sinful neediness. This is how we were created in the image of God. Verse 22 says, I've given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me. There's the reason why we look to the creator. And that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you've given to me to be with me where I am. That they can see all the glory you gave me because you love me even before the world began. O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know you sent me. I've revealed you to them, and I'll continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. I want you to see just a real simple image here that counselors have been using for a long time, and, and uh, it's, it's just really, really basic. The bottom line is the more that you are on a trajectory to glowing closer to the Lord, as other people are trying to grow closer to the Lord, the closer you do become to one another. If you want your relationships to get back on track, if you want your, your relationships to have meaning and count for something eternal, start pursuing the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What God has given for us as an assignment to exercise the mission is through the people that we're in closest contact with. So often we tell married couples, your, your biggest mission field is in your kitchen or in your living room, or in your house, anywhere, because your good ministry will not happen when everything's broken down at home. You start first at home, and then everything else that the Lord's intended for you to do to be a light to this world pours out of that. Your greatest mission field is under your own roof. Perhaps it's in your cubicle because of uh, that's not the, the thing that you have at home or something. It's in your closest relationships is your greatest mission. As you grow closer to the Lord, as you chase him down, you will grow closer to others. It is incompatible with the mission of the church, which was given to us through the prayer we just read. It's incompatible to want to live in isolation. We're meant to face each other and work it out. It's also incompatible with the mission of the church to need other people to be perfect for us. Christ called us to draw unto the Father, making us more tolerable of other people's weaknesses. When we know the one true God, we stop expecting humans to be him. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you, Father, this morning for giving us what is sometimes the necessary difficulty of human interaction. I thank you, Lord, for at some point, some way, shape, or form, giving every person in this room a relationship they can actually be thankful for, whether it was momentary or whether it continues. God, whether we have good relationships or bad, none of them are as bad as they could be because of your grace. Help us, Lord, to go beyond just finding the silver lining. Help us to go beyond just bucking up. Help us to go beyond just enduring for endurance sake, but rather to find our mission in living out well with other people. Help us to forgive one another as Christ has forgiven us. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.